Welcome to the Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host Ali Houston as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with the Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and enjoy the show. All right, and we are recording. And I'm delighted to have with me today Professor Ben Bickman, who's a professor of physiology and developmental biology at Brigham Young University in Utah. Welcome, Ben. Thanks very much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Ali. Thanks for reaching out and thanks for the invitation to join you. Sure thing. Um, I've been following you on Twitter for a few years now, and um, I really appreciate what you do on there. I think... um, science communication is almost a field in itself and there's such a mixed bag of information and characters on line talking about science talking about nutrition talking about low carb particularly and i feel like there's several archetypes you know there's um there's a couple of them where there's can be quite strident in their views or they say bold things and they get attacked for it and then there's maybe another type where um, the very careful scientists who um, are quite conservative in what they say, and I feel like if there was a Venn diagram of those two, then maybe you'd be yeah. you'd be in there because you're extremely careful about what you say and precise in your language. But at the same time, you're not you're not afraid to say really quite uh, bold things about what you think the literature actually says. Um, right. I mean, maybe you could tell us just to start a bit about your background and um, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, Ali, I'm delighted to hear that description. I, I do think that, uh, especially nowadays, we need to have conversations um, in a a way that allows for nuance and in a way that uh, is is sprinkled with some degree of humility in, in, in when we say these, when we make claims where we need to be humble enough to realize that we might not know everything we think we do or what we, what we think we know may be wrong or proven wrong at some future date. So I'm glad to hear that description. Um, and especially because I am a scientist, that's by way of introduction, I'm a biomedical scientist that studies really a human metabolic function, but at a cellular level. And that's something that sounds really clever, but I do mean, you know, literally, we, we generally study fat cells um, from humans. That's the latest focus of research in my lab, the metabolism research lab. But because I'm a scientist, I, I can never be too wedded to any particular theory. Uh, because then it's you've gone beyond science, and now you're just a religious um, zealot. And I have no problem with religion. I wouldn't want someone to misunderstand me. I'm personally a very religious person. But there's a difference between the scientific um, process um, or or a religious conviction. And and nowadays, unfortunately, while many invoke science, claiming proudly they believe in science, 
that's a very strange thing for me as a scientist to hear people say, because what they're really doing is um, feeling content and quite pleased when they find one single line of evidence that supports their, their biases, and then to hell with any other view. And, and that's as anti-scientific as you can get. So what they're proclaiming is their belief, their faith in one particular line of thinking, which again, is not scientific. Anyway, not to wax philosophical, I, I, I am a scientist as in, in the areas I just mentioned. I'm a professor as well, which is a job that I really relish. I enjoy this balance. Um, and I'd like to think that being a professor has enabled me <clears throat> to share my scientific views somewhat better because it's one thing to be making discoveries and finding answers to questions in a scientific method, but it's another to be able to convey those answers or that insight that, that I maybe have gained as a scientist. And being a professor helps me polish those skills because if I'm attempting to convey information to a, a group of, of 20 year olds, in my class, if I'm not conveying it well, they let it be known very, very quickly. Uh, they do not suffer in silence. It seems less and less every year. Um, I'm forced to be more clear. I'm forced to find better analogies and examples as I'm discussing some of these principles. So that's, that's who I am professionally speaking, uh, professor and a scientist, and I enjoy how the two come together in making me curious and in um, sharing that curiosity with others. Brilliant. Yeah, so your book is out just now, Why We Get Sick, uh, the subtitles, The Hidden Epidemic, The Root of Most Chronic Disease and How to Fight It. And I just love the title and subtitle. I think, um, we can get to, uh, oh, maybe I'll just say it just now, you know, there's, I've often wondered what percentage of diseases, um, or another way of looking at it maybe is what percentage of healthcare spending is resolvable through lifestyle alone. And I sometimes wonder, is it 70, 80, 90%? Um, I wonder if maybe you have a feel for that to start us off, and then maybe you could talk about how, you know, the book came about and what you want to say with it. Right. Yeah, Ali, what a great view. <clears throat> I, I don't have a, a strong enough feel for healthcare expenses to guess at that. I would suspect that it would be well over 50% uh, for sure. And, and, and that, that is the purpose of the book, uh, which was to highlight what I considered was an, uh, an extremely relevant, perhaps the single most relevant variable that predicated virtually all chronic diseases, or to, to varying degrees. I'm not at all claiming that insulin resistance, which is really the, the, the emphasis of the book, is the single cause of chronic disease. No, not at all. I, I wouldn't be so bold or naive, but it is one that I think is extremely relevant, and I, uh, I, I defend that view with um, hundreds of citations throughout the book, um, just, to, just so that the reader knows I'm not making it up. Um, and the power there is that with that paradigm of acknowledging the reality of, of the scientific literature that, that insulin resistance does underpin um, to varying degrees almost every chronic disease, it gives us a single point of, of combat, if you will, or a single target, um, rather than looking at type two diabetes and fatty liver disease and infertility and hypertension as 
as four completely distinct separate diseases that have nothing to do with each other, when you acknowledge that insulin resistance is pivotal to every one of those four situations and many more, then, then rather than the patient taking four distinct medications or, or treating these four diseases um, separately or attempting to, you say, well, there's a, common, there's a common root cause. Each of these problems, and again, others, are branches coming from the same tree. So let's just quit trying to prune the branches and just cut the whole damn tree down. And, and that's what you're able to do really to a very large degree. And I say that because there's evidence to support it. And the anecdotal um, evidence that I've seen in, in, in those around me and uh, people I've heard from really reveals um, that, that, that this happens, that someone is able to really improve multiple um, disorders by addressing one common cause, namely insulin resistance. And that, of course, is best addressed by lifestyle changes. Insulin resistance and all of the disorders that stem from it are not, this is not a problem of, of the lack of a drug. And so you can't expect a drug to fix the problem. It can certainly you know, seem to make the branches better to keep that analogy going, but it's never really going to get rid of the problem. You address the root problem. And, and that is, that's the, you'd ask about sort of the origins of the book. <clears throat> that's kind of what it, what it is. As, as a professor, um, I was, uh, the class I was tasked to teach at my university is a class called pathophysiology or the sick body or when the tissues of the body aren't working. So I have a lot of pre-med and nursing students. And I would, as I was preparing these lectures, I was struck at how common insulin resistance was coming up as, as causal or in the ideology of so many of these diseases that I was teaching the students. And that left such an impression on me that I thought, I'm just going to go through this exercise of starting to compile all these scientific manuscripts um, that, that identify insulin resistance as part of the origin of these, all these chronic diseases that everyone's um, aware of or afraid of these days. And it, I was left with so much substance uh, that it, I, couldn't, I couldn't keep it to myself. And, and so that was really the impetus for the book. It was me believing I'd stumbled on this, this goldmine of, of kind of biomedical evidence suggesting that we need to shift our paradigm in conventional medicine to at least include insulin resistance within that view um, so that we're really accounting for an overlooked variable. Yeah, that makes sense. And I really want to get to insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, the kind of misuse of the term insulin resistance and other things. I wanted to pick up on what you said about, um, about, uh, you know, the, um, the compilation of diseases that you realized insulin was associated with. I mean, something that comes up again and again on the podcast is, you know, when you start a low carb diet and all these health problems go away, Lots of people simply don't believe you. Um, you know, mm -hmm. Do Dr. David Unwin was on recently saying as much about his patients and you know, the importance of recording the improvements in the scientific literature because otherwise uh, other doctors, other scientists, lay people are just going to think that you're a crank. Um, yep. I mean, could you, you, you mentioned four uh, kind of disease brackets um, 
uh, hypertension, diabetes, uh, fatty liver and infertility that uh, you found could be helped. Um, I mean, can you list some, some other common diseases where oh, hy sure. hyperinsulinemia is associated or prevents them healing? Yeah, yeah, for sure. In, in fact, and, and let me, because you mentioned David Unwin, what a, what a champion he is of the use, the clinical use of low-carb diets. And I, I admire and I'm delighted that he acknowledges that for better or for worse, people want to ignore anecdotes. And of course, the, the, the compilation or the, the, the accumulation of anecdotes turn into data that can then be peer reviewed and published. And for better or for worse, it seems that people insist on playing that game of publishing. And I appreciate it, I'm a scientist after all, but, uh, and, you know, a publishing scientist. Uh, and I, I respect that David sort of, I could imagine him screaming from the rooftops, this is what I'm seeing in my clinic and people saying, oh no, no you're not, not really. And then once it's published in a manuscript, then they can sagely lean back and you know, thoughtfully put their finger to their, to their chin and say, wow, like maybe Dr. Unwin does have something there. So good for David for playing the game and beating them at their own game. Um, yeah, so other um, disorders where the audience might be uh, intrigued to learn that insulin resistance is fundamental um, to the disorder. I'd mentioned infertility, and I'll elaborate on that a little bit because it is so unexpected, and yet the, the, the connection there is so incredibly strong. The most common form of infertility in women is PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome. At the, the root of the problem, it's too much insulin in the body, which is part of insulin resistance. And in this situation, it's a very unexpected um, phenomenon, but uh, for the woman to have a successful ovulatory cycle or for, for an ovary to actually ovulate an egg, then she must have had right prior to that a big spike in estrogens, these prototypical female sex hormones. And that big spike <clears throat> actually is ne uh, it can only happen if the ovaries are converting a high degree of testosterone into estrogens. It's a little known fact that all estrogens in men and women were once testosterone. And then the ovaries and the testes convert that testosterone into the estrogens. And there's one particular step that mediates that conversion and insulin turns that step off. And so this woman's ovaries during the course of the, the cycle are about, they're, they're really ready to ramp up their production of estrogens. And uh, unfortunately, if the body is swimming in a sea of insulin, insulin is pressing down on that conversion. And now the ovaries have, well, two problems. The first, there, there's not enough production of estrogens to actually induce the ovulation of a single follicle within the ovaries. And so both ovaries retain all those follicles. And then over cycle, over cycle, they continue to get bigger and bigger, which is, you know, kind of the nature of the polycystic ovary. So they fail to have ovulation because, because of the lack of an estrogen spike. <clears throat> but they also now have too much testosterone flowing through their bodies because insulin didn't let the testosterone get converted. And now the unfortunate woman adding insult to injury has to, to some degree, experience the consequences of too much testosterone, like uh, a greater coarseness of body hair, arm and leg hair, or armpit hair gets more coarse, or even facial hair. 
They may have male pattern baldness to a degree, and they may have acne like we typically think of in young men, you know, in pubescent boys as they're transitioning into adulthood because of partly the very high levels of testosterone. So polycystic ovary syndrome really is at its core a metabolic problem that has impacted the ovaries. And then in men, the most common form of infertility is erectile dysfunction. And in fact, that um, connection is so strong that there is, an ex there is a, a research manuscript that has something in the title like, is erectile dysfunction the earliest symptom of insulin resistance in men? It's, it was, it's so intimately connected, the two, that, that some believe it, it, it should just be viewed as a sign of insulin resistance, even before the insulin resistance has been confirmed clinically. And in this case, it has nothing to do with his testes. It's nothing to do with his sex hormone production. It's rather uh, what insulin resistance has done to the blood vessels in that man, where for normal fertility, a man must be able to experience this process called vasodilation, where the blood vessels will rapidly dilate, changing blood flow to the of course, in the body. With insulin resistance, those blood vessels do not dilate. And thus, as blood flow is expected to shift around the body, it doesn't happen. And thus he has erectile dysfunction. So both of these disorders through two totally separate mechanisms end up compromising fertility across the sexes. So of course, a significant problem. And then maybe just by way of one final example, because I could go on for some time, Alzheimer's disease is uh, very, very strongly connected to um, uh, glucose and insulin resistance to the point that some refer to Alzheimer's disease as insulin resistance of the brain or type 3 diabetes. I prefer the former than the latter. Type, calling it type 3 diabetes makes people think that it's a completely new disease. It's, it is not. It is simply insulin resistance, which underpins type 2 diabetes. It's just when the problem has compromised the brain. And very briefly, the brain has a reliance on, on glucose, or I'll back up. The brain is an energy hog. It has a very high demand for energy. And, and glucose is generally the primary fuel for, for giving the brain that energy that it's demanding. <clears throat> Insulin mediates the movement of some of the glucose from the blood into the brain. And as the brain is becoming insulin resistant, then it's not able to get its energy from glucose adequately. So there's this energetic gap between what the brain is demanding and what glucose can actually provide. And this is a, an extremely um, well-documented phenomenon, this compromised glucose uptake into the brain of people with early Alzheimer's or out full-blown uh, outright Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so we can detect the compromised glucose and it's something we can detect decades before the person is ever even diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. It's a very sensitive um, method of detection, albeit quite clinically um, involved, where uh, it, it involves some chemicals and some you know, machinery, some technology that is, is a bit, um, well, uh, it's a bit uh, in depth, in, if you will. But nevertheless, we can detect it clinically and it is a warning sign for Alzheimer's disease. So basically from, from brain to bottom and everywhere in between, if there's a problem that someone's concerned with, to, it, it, they shouldn't be surprised if they realize that insulin resistance is part of the problem in, it, to a, a little or a very big way. Mm -hmm. Dementia is particularly close to me as my grandmother died with Alzheimer's and I have 
one APOE epsilon four polymorphism. So that puts me at high risk of all sorts of diseases, including out, you know the Alzheimer's that, that got my gran and the cardiovascular disease that got my dad. And you know, kind of similarly to to cancer, it's a very sensitive subject, and you know, understandably so. Um, there's jet, there's really snake oil salesmen who would sell people supplements or fake hope. Um, but I think there are a few too many itchy trigger fingers online trying to paint anyone who suggests new routes to treating or investigating these diseases with that brush. Um, I mean, how do you see the ongoing uh, efforts in, in uh, research and treatment of um, Alzheimer's? And do you think, I mean, something I'm really interested in is, do you think these things are more preventable than reversible? Yeah, great, great question and great insight. Uh, I, I actually share that concern with you, having seen a loved one pass away and suffer from Alzheimer's disease for a decade. It is, it is a terrifying, crippling disease that really scares the hell out of me. And, and, and also uh, having seen my mother battle with cancer um, years, years ago when I was just a boy. Um, so in fact, when people ask me why I adhere to a low-carb diet, and they're surprised, given my focus on diabetes, as a scientist, they think that it's because of a family history of diabetes. Uh, indeed, I have none of that. My personal conviction and my impetus for adhering to a low-carb diet is because of the evidence, even sparsely in some instances, like with cancer, that I, this is something I could do to help reduce my risk of Alzheimer's disease, where there is increasingly very compelling data, and I'll elaborate more on that in a moment, and then even cancer, where there is admittedly much less data, but even still the little bit of data that are out there give me a little bit of hope that I'm at least controlling one variable that I, that I can control. So in the case of Alzheimer's disease, the evidence really is mounting that, that you, there is an energetic gap between what the brain needs and what the glucose can provide, and so if you can't immediately overcome that gap, and indeed perhaps the person is too far gone, that the, the glucose can never um, uh, return to, you know, the brain can never return to full insulin sensitivity, uh, you know, it's you know, too far gone. But there is even still in those evidence, those instances of full-blown Alzheimer's disease, there are, there are case studies published um, that, that show that you can put the person into a state of elevated ketones called ketosis by just giving them <clears throat> a ketone drink, let alone um, putting them into a, a ketogenic diet or a very low-carb diet. But you can, uh, you can uh, demonstrate, you can quantify the improvements in the person's cognition. They speak better. They write better. They recall better. They can perform daily activities like getting themselves dressed. Not, I'm not making any of this up. This is published in case studies. So that to me um, is incredibly powerful, especially as we are continuing. So much of the focus with Alzheimer's disease in particular has been trying to get rid of these amyloid plaques. And which is a feature of the demented brain. And yet any intervention, any efforts to try to reduce plaques, which, which are to varying degrees is successful. There are things to reduce plaques. They don't actually improve the disease. The cognition doesn't rebound to the degree that you'd expect. In stark contrast, by you know, kind of addressing the energetic gap in Alzheimer's disease, 
you, we do see very real improvements. Not to say the person returns to perfectly normal function, not at all. They are still very clearly um, suffering from dementia. And so and there may be nothing to do uh, with regards to totally reversing it. Um, although maybe some future technology will reveal that. At the moment, no such thing exists. But I do believe, and there's limited evidence here as well, because you know, to suggest that a low-carb diet is going to be therapeutic in preventing the onset of Alzheimer's disease, I don't know of any very compelling data, partly because you, you almost can't do that kind of study realistically in a human. You can't intervene in 50-year-olds and then follow them for the next 30 years and, and see, did your adherence to a low-carb ketogenic diet you know, prevent? You, you just can't really do that. So I am admittedly filling in some gaps myself but I'm willing to do that just on the hope that I, I'm doing anything to help mitigate my risk of getting that disease later in life. And then with regards to cancer, there is some evidence to show that being in ketosis is therapeutic, especially for brain cancers, um, uh, but, but not too much other evidence. And so I do speak about that with a very high degree of caution because cancer uh, is even more so than Alzheimer's disease, something we understand very, very poorly. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, um, to me, it's about prevention rather than reversal and doing anything we can to stack the odds in our favor. Um, and I guess uh, doing no harm is, um, it should be the mm -hmm. first rule of, of how we, of how we, uh, you know, look after ourselves. Um, yeah. So I, I love the I love the distinction that that people make between different types of insulin resistance. I think it, for a long time, and probably still now, a lot of the time, um, people weren't doing that. But maybe you could talk about how you've got um, kind of physiological and pathological insulin resistance, and then maybe you know lead on to talking about hyperinsulinemia and and what that mm -hmm. is all about. Yeah, yeah, happy to. In fact, I'll, I'll even start with hyperinsulinemia as part of the description of pathological insulin resistance. In fact, any insulin resistance. So uh, uh, pathological insulin resistance versus physiological insulin resistance is simply a difference of, is, is the insulin resistance serving a purpose? Then it's physiological. And that does happen in a couple instances, which I'll touch on in a moment in, in, human, in the life of a human or some humans. Um, in one instance. And then on the other hand, pathological insulin resistance is that which we are seeing more abundantly every, every day, it seems, which is the insulin resistance you and I have been discussing that touches on chronic diseases. Regardless, by way of establishing a definition of insulin resistance, which I defend uh, very, very uh, vigorously, insulin resistance is really two sides of a coin. So the coin that we call insulin resistance has two sides. One side is the actual event of some cells not responding as well to insulin as they used to. They are literally resistant to what insulin is trying to tell the cell to do. And this is a, a phenomenon identified at the level of, of cells. And that's where the term insulin resistance comes from. That's why we call it that. So on one hand, you do have some cells, not all, some cells failing to respond well to insulin. On the other hand, though, and this is essential, the body, uh, if it's insulin resistance in the body, the other half of this coin is, is there. You can't ignore it, and that is hyperinsulinemia. 
it is, it is necessary that someone appreciates that in what we call insulin resistance, you will always have these two events occurring at the same time. You cannot have one without the other. If you remove the hyperinsulinemia, the insulin resistance is resolved itself. These two go hand in hand. Removing one is to remove the coin entirely. So that is insulin resistance. And in the case of pathological insulin resistance, this is what we're seeing as a result of our, what I believe the, the environment we've put ourselves in, largely um, the incessant consumption of refined starches and sugars. I, that is, now, now I want to temper this and say that there are multiple causes of insulin resistance. And I wouldn't claim um, this to be the only one, but I do believe it is the most relevant by incessantly consuming refined carbohydrates, which we are told to do to varying degrees, we're told to eat a high carbohydrate diet, and we're told to eat, in many instances, you know, four to six meals and snacks per day. That means that our insulin is likely to be elevated every moment of the day because it takes, hour, it takes insulin a few hours to get back down to normal, depending on the size of the carbohydrate, the amount of carbohydrate consumed, and the nature of the carbohydrate, of course. But, but the body is essentially in a state of chronically elevated insulin. That is a cause of insulin resistance. So if when a cell sees too much insulin, it starts to become resistant to the insulin. And even if we leave the insulin behind for a moment, that's a fundamental biological principle. When a cell is being incessantly stimulated with something, it will start to downgrade its sensitivity to that something. The incessant stimulus results in a resistance to that stimulus. And we see this across like I said, it's fundamental to biology. We see this with antibiotics. We see this with drugs. Something as seemingly benign as caffeine. Whatever it is that the body is seeing too much of, it starts to reduce its signal to that something. And then the person would need more of it to get the same effect. That's what's happening um, in the case of insulin resistance. So we have pathological insulin resistance, which is coming on because of the environmental insults that we're exposing our bodies to, like the, the way we eat or the way we sleep, you know, because stress um, contributes to insulin resistance as well, and a couple others. But on the other side, we have physiological insulin resistance, which is not driven because of an external stimulus. It's an internal change, namely puberty and pregnancy. Every human that is going through puberty is experiencing a degree of insulin resistance. Hyperinsulinemia is a fundamental part of this. And that is, it serves a purpose because it helps that little boy or girl have a period of explosive growth because insulin is anabolic. <clears throat> so we have that state of altered insulin signaling at some cells and hyperinsulinemia. And then secondly, once again, a state of explosive growth in the mom-to-be. Pregnancy is another instance of physiological insulin resistance, where the woman, month after month, is becoming increasingly more insulin resistant. That helps her grow more fat tissue and other tissues, the placenta included, of course. And it also helps the baby have an, this incredible growth, especially it helps baby in the last you know, trimester get fat. And babies are supposed to be fat, uh, that that's healthy. In fact, it's not healthy for baby to be too lean. Uh, and there's, that's a whole other topic, but it's a fascinating one. So in both instances, puberty and pregnancy, the insulin resistance is serving a purpose 
to fuel growth. And then of course, in the case of pathological insulin resistance, that's no good purpose. It's just making the body, it, the body's responding to the environment, but it's not a, a beneficial or a physiological response. Great summation. I love uh, that you picked up on uh, humans having fat babies. Um, yeah. it, it kind of speaks to a very deep um, truth about us as, as uh, apes and mm-hmm. how we... Um, how we have a big advantage over over other animals, you know, who aren't born fat. Uh, they're, they're immediately... That's in, right. They're immediately in arrears and need to, uh, you know, um, find energy. They can't, um, they can't spend time doing other things like, uh, like growing a massive prefrontal cortex. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, so even by... You compare us to any other any primate, any animal, non-human animal, and even, even a very lean human would be considered an obese primate. You just, and someone would look at a gorilla and think, well, a gorilla is very fat. He's got a huge stomach. No, it's because the gorilla is constantly bloated because of all the plant matter they have to eat. They have such massively large colons, so they're constantly bloated. Um, it's not that they're fat. These animals are, any land-based animal really is incredibly lean for the most part. Uh, humans, we are the only land-based mammals that are born obese. And to your point, the, the, that is likely uh, very much to feed our incredibly expensive brains, where a little newborn baby will get into deep, deep ketosis within just hours after eating. And the ketones, which are coming largely from that baby's fat, provide the brain with an incredible, good, an incredible source of fuel, allowing that explosive growth of this, this expensive demanding tissue, the brain. And that is one of the big changes between humans um, or differences between humans and other animals, primates included. We have significantly shorter intestines compared to all other primates. <clears throat> and we have significantly bigger brains. And that is um, thought to be the result of what was called by some anthropologists the expensive tissue hypothesis. And basically our ancestors, however we came to be, and there are more gaps in that process than many people think. I, I just feel compelled to say that people look at evolution as this absolute um, done, settled idea. And that, that is simply not true. I understand that we want to clasp on to some idea. And so we may as well clasp on to that. But Anyway, just a note of caution. Uh, when people speak with absolute certainty in science, you should be very worried about what else they're attempting to sell you um, to some degree or another. But nevertheless, the idea is that our ancestors um, shifted the way they ate and started relying more on nutrient-dense foods like animal-sourced foods. Um, so we started eating other animals, and that allowed, because these foods are so much more nutrient-dense than plant matter, which is absolutely true, it, it, it enabled or facilitated the shrinking of the intestines. And because the food was so nutrient dense, it enabled the growth of the brain, partly perhaps driven because when you eat one meal of animal sourced foods, you have obtained such a, a density of nutrients and calories that you can now sit back and think and be curious for the next 24 hours, rather than literally constantly having to be foraging for foods, we were able to take a break from that and then get curious and inventive. And that might've been, you know, part of the explosive growth of of this big energy hog we call the brain. Yeah. I love all that. Um, 
speculation. In fact, in fact Ali, well. you've got a, you've got a con. You, what you ought to do is get a guy named Stephen Kunane on, on your podcast sometime. He's really the guy that I, everything I just said over the last two minutes, I stole from him because that is his explicit area of research. Whereas it's not mine. I'm speaking with a false sense of authority. It's, it's his authority that I'm leaning on when I say these things. I will. Yeah, I will. And you know, all of that's, um, it's, uh, further um, shows the, the, the ludicrous nature of the complaint against Tim Noakes about um, you know, his, uh, his general information giving on uh, babies being weaned because yep. um, babies are in ketosis a lot of the time. They are. Yeah, they get into a deep state of ketosis that would take an adult. What, what, what a baby can get into in two hours, an adult would get into in almost two days. It's, it's a, a pure fasting, a literal pure fasting for an adult. A baby gets into after just two hours of fasting, you know, if we want to call it a fast. It's, it's shocking. And it, it just is absolute proof positive that ketosis is not an unnatural state for humans. I'm not saying a person, I'm deliberately saying it that way. You don't have to be in ketosis all the time to be natural. I'm not saying that. But it clearly is something that we, are, uh, we should be well adapted to. Absolutely. Um, now, where do mitochondria come in here? I'm constantly bringing up mitochondria on the podcast because I feel like as, a, as someone who's got a physics degree, um, I, I want to chop everything back to the most basic building block because um, I always want to simplify things for myself. Um, to me, that's almost as fundamental as it gets, right? The mitochondria, the little power stations that are in our, all of our cells. Um, you know, to my mind, the breakdown in signaling and function in the mitochondria of various tissues is really where most modern chronic diseases start and that the type of tissue uh, mitochondrial dysfunction gives you the type of disease, but really the root cause is um, the same or very similar. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's, it's great insight. I would, um, I, I think it is apparent in these states of ensuing metabolic or I'll say cardiometabolic um, disarray that there's, there's no question that the, there's evidence that the mitochondria are lacking or, or, or not working optimally. In fact, one example of this is seen with the accumulation of a nutrient, and an actual nutrient called lactate. Now, lactate is a nutrient. It is a molecule that can be taken in just like ketones. It is actually taken in by the same cellular transporters that ketones are pulled into a cell. Lactate can come into a cell and into the mitochondria and be burned for energy. The brain, for example, uses lactate as an energy source, albeit much less than ketones, and again, much less than glucose. Um, but but never, my point being, in, in a person who has prediabetes, and as they progress towards frank type 2 diabetes, you do see lactate accumulating in the person's blood. It's getting steadily higher. And that is thought to be reflective of this progressive degeneration of the mitochondria's ability to oxidize fuels from lactate and ketones and even fatty acids this is evidence of perhaps a metabolic dis, or mitochondrial dysfunction, as it's commonly called, because the, these nutrients, ketones, lactates, and fatty acids, can only be metabolized in the mitochondria, whereas glucose has a non-mitochondrial um, component to their metabolism. 
So, uh, yes, the, now, I, I firmly believe the evidence supports the idea that mitochondrial dysfunction is uh, a key aspect of cardiometabolic um, uh, uh, disorders. The degree to which the mitochondrial dysfunction is causing the cardiometabolic disorder, I would be less confident saying, not that I think it's wrong, I would just say, um, I, I don't know. I can't with such conviction say that the mitochondrial dysfunction is causing the problem, whether it's accompanying the problem or whether it's a, itself a consequence of the problem. And I would say the same thing even to varying degrees with insulin resistance that, you know, I wouldn't want someone to think I'm only ever saying it's the key cause. But back to the point at hand, the mitochondria, there's no question that their function has been compromised. They are not oxidizing nutrients as well as they did before. And, and related to that, they appear to be producing greater reactive oxygen species. That's the general source of, of um, the mitochondria are the source of reactive oxygen species. And so as the mitochondria become less capable of breaking down nutrients and producing energetic molecules from that for the cell to use, they continue to, to varying degrees break down a nutrient, although that may be compromised, and then all the more compromised in producing energetic molecules like ATP, they end up producing reactive oxygen species. That's sort of this, this byproduct, an unintended byproduct. So it's like the engine, the mitochondria is an engine. It's becoming less capable at taking in the fuel in the first place. And, and, and in contrast, rather than burning that fuel to, to move the vehicle, it's burning that fuel just to um, spill, spew more exhaust into the, you know, into the room, into the environment. And that exhaust would be, you know, analogous to say the reactive oxygen species. So yes, there's no question a mitochondrial dysfunction is a part of cardiometabolic disorders. The degree to which it's causing it, I just can't say. And yeah, you're interested in the, the difference between white and brown fat, right? Um, yeah. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Oh yeah, you bet. Yeah, this is research we've been doing in my own lab, in fact. Um, and the, the differences between white and brown fat are differences of mitochondria. So it's appropriate um, that you're bringing it up now. Of course, that's not an accident. So um, when, we, uh, when we are teasing out actual fat tissues from mammals, um, you have white fat that actually, it is actually this kind of whitish, yellowish tissue, or you have these small pockets of brown fat and it looks kind of reddish brown. The differences in color is entirely a result of differences in mitochondrial density. White adipose tissue or white fat tissue has extremely little mitochondria. And that's not surprising. This is a tissue that doesn't have a high metabolic demand. It's, it's, it is accurately looked at as a sort of a storage depot, although it does more than that but it's, it's built to store energy rather than use the energy itself. In contrast, brown adipose tissue has relatively little, much less fat stored in it, and it has an extremely heavy population of mitochondria. Um, and it's because brown fat is built to burn energy. It's built to burn fat and burn glucose. And in so doing, it's producing a lot of heat. And so it's very, very metabolically active where it can, produce, it can break down as much energy as it needs because most tissues are only breaking down as much energy as the cell needs. You know, like a muscle, for example, it's not going to waste its glucose and fat. It will only use as much glucose and fat as the muscle cell needs to contract and relax. 
in so it's very it's very efficient in that regard. However, brown adipose tissue is very inefficient, although that's a metabolic advantage if we're trying to control fat. You know, we want to be burning more fat, but the brown adipose tissue is burning fat for no good reason. It's burning fat and glucose just to produce heat, but that's a very wasteful process within, you know, strictly speaking. Strictly speaking, that, that would make bad biochemical sense. Um, but it does create an opportunity um, to control body fat better. And so if someone has more active brown fat, which we can quantify in humans, it's very, very likely they're going to be leaner and have a much lower risk of diabetes. And that's just because that's an, that's an outlet for energy. Um, it, it's a way for the body to kind of get rid of or to, to vent some excess energy, just activate the brown fat. And we can manipulate that a little bit. Someone listening to this would think, well, how can I take advantage of my brown fat? We published a paper finding that ketones can stimulate brown, uh, can stimulate white fat to start acting a little more like brown fat. And we did this in humans where we were pulling biopsies of the fat beside their navel. And we found that uh, when people were in ketosis, the metabolic rate of these fat cells was about three times higher than it was otherwise when they weren't in ketosis. And, and, and we were looking at the mitochondrial level. We were actually measuring the degree to which the mitochondria were working, and they were significantly more active. So that's, that's one reason, uh, another among many perhaps, to favor a low-carbohydrate diet. If you are allowing your insulin to, be, to come down by avoiding refined starches and sugars, you not only have all the advantages of low insulin, which we've touched on and I outline in the book, but you also have the potential advantage of increasing your ketones a little bit. And those ketones can be accelerating the metabolic rate, literally accelerating the metabolic rate in your fat cells. That's cool. We hear a lot about fat metabolism in relation to COVID-19. Um, yeah. You know, the type of fat metabolism seems to mediate the worst effects actually of COVID-19 and it's um, a bit of a political hot potato because yeah. you know there's um, there's a fine line between uh, public service in information and um, so-called fat shaming, and you know what do you think is the situation with fat and COVID nineteen? Oh yeah, yeah. I uh, Ali well said. It is certainly a a, a very <clears throat> polarizing topic. My views on, on, on defending this brief moment of our conversation is that I firmly believe COVID-19 is a new part of the global ecosystem. This is a virus that is here to stay. I, I don't think for even a second we're going to eradicate this virus completely. Our history of eradicating viruses has never um, been very illustrious. This is something that's just almost impossible to truly, totally contain. Um, despite vaccines, which, which I think um, are going to prove very helpful. Um, so my view is COVID-19 is here. It's a matter of time before someone's going to suffer from it. Do what you can to take matters into your own hands. And the evidence is exceedingly clear on this point. The single most relevant pre-existing condition that will determine whether someone has a very serious COVID-19 infection or a very mild infection is their body fatness. And this was a study published early in 2020 that identified these pre-existing conditions and really put a fine point on it. Obesity was pre-existing condition number one. Now that, that is delicate um, because it's not, it's not 
polite to point that out. <clears throat> but I'm a scientist, uh, by golly, and I don't have to care about being polite. I want to be polite just because I was raised to be a pleasant person, and I don't like offending people. But I do think it is, it is shocking, the efforts, especially I, I've just seen in social media very, very recently, of, of highlighting people that are very clearly obese and, and, and having little headlines like this is the new normal or this is healthy. It, it is not. It, it is absolutely false. And I, I, I just feel like I have to point that out as a scientist who studies fat cells and studies obesity. Don't believe the hype. And in the case of COVID-19, um, part of the problem with any well, part of the reality of any virus is the virus itself is not an independent cell. It is simply a particle of genetic information. In order for this virus to, to propagate or proliferate, it needs to get into a cell. And once it is in a host cell, like one of the cells of the body, then it can start to hijack that cell and turn that cell into a factory producing more of itself, which is then spread throughout the body and invades or infects other cells. So the relevant piece to this is how does the viral particle, COVID-19 included, get into a cell? And so it needs something called a co-receptor. And, and the co-receptor basically acts as a doorway for COVID-19 to get into and infect a cell. Well, fat cells have more of that co-receptor than almost any other cell in the body. So it's, it's almost, fat cells are almost built to be an ideal home for COVID-19. And then, of course, it stands to reason that if you have a lot more fat cells, you have a much more welcoming neighborhood for COVID-19 to come and move in. And once it has moved in, it starts it turns that home into a factory, producing more of itself. And in the case of the fat cell, forcing the fat cell to produce these pro-inflammatory proteins called cytokines, which can contribute to the development of blood clots, which is a very big part of the lethality of COVID-19. What, what can kill many people, I think it was up to 40% of people who actually die from COVID-19 and not something else, that, that die with COVID-19. It's, it's the strokes that come because of the formation of blood clots. Well, fat cells, fat cells are very good producers of proteins that promote blood clots. So there we have the connection. Um, all the more reason for someone who has been frustrated with their body weight, let this be one more speck of motivation to tip the scales in favor of really taking matters into your own hands. And I appreciate, I appreciate how challenging that is. I, I really do. And so I wouldn't want someone to hear me describing this and them thinking to themselves, oh, Ben, you're such a smug son of a gun. You don't really know what it's like to struggle with obesity. I, I don't. And I, I wouldn't want someone to think that while the, the principles of weight management are simple, that doesn't mean they're easy to incorporate. It is a challenge. It is really, in some instances, monumental challenge dealing with deep-seated habits and even addictions when it comes to food um, that, that someone has to change. But let this current epidemic be all the more reason to take metabolic matters into our own hands and, and have that, that degree of, of ownership of our health. I think that's a, a great positive to, to finish on. Um, and it's the reason I started Paleo Canteen um, was to provide information and uh, food to people that could help them 
uh, make it that that bit easier when it, it is a difficult road uh, where where a lot of us are addicted to bad food. Um, so maybe we could round off just by you telling people where where they should uh, come and look for you online. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks again, Ali. This was, I think, time well spent. Uh, thanks again for the opportunity in the audience. I am, I'm pretty, I'm fairly active on social media and more and more that's Instagram as Twitter is increasingly just a cesspool of hostility and anger. I find myself just not enjoying that venue as much. So I'm more in, uh, active on Instagram. As I said, people can find me there at Ben Bickman PhD and, and please do find me. Um, I share um, typically just little video snippets about human metabolism. It's never videos of me working out, never videos of me at home. That's just too personal and irrelevant. I just want to share a metabolic insight into human health. And um, I encourage also uh, people find me at my uh, website called Get Health. H-L-T-H is a clever way of spelling health. Get Health, H-L-T-H.com, where I contribute blog posts and where people can learn about a, a low-carb um, meal replacement shake, high-fat, high-protein that I helped develop uh, because I didn't think anyone had done it well yet. And then, of course, go get my book, Why We Get Sick, anywhere you buy books. It's really, if, if this conversation has been stimulating and engaging and even entertaining, well, you'll get all the same, um, same of that, uh, more of that in the book, of course. And uh, yeah, Ali, thanks again. I really enjoyed uh, the chat with you now. Thanks. I appreciate your time, Ben. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and see you next time.